We are in the fifth message in this series from the book of Corinthians, and uh, we're not out of chapter one yet, so it may be a while before we get to chapter 16. Stay with me. There's so much important truth. I don't want you to miss it uh, out of this book. If you're not aware of what 1 Corinthians is about, it's a letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, the Corinthian believers, the church in Corinth, in answer to questions that they have asked of him. Thus the title, Dear Paul. Dear Paul, what do we do about this? How do we handle that? And in addition, some things that Paul has heard about that were going on in the church, he writes this letter back with not just human advice, but with divine advice, divine instruction as to what they're supposed to do about those particular matters. He begins at the very start of this letter by talking about the division that exists between them. They are divided over preachers and over style. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. They're divided over preachers and over style. But the Apostle Paul comes and he says, you got to do away with that division. God has got to bring you together into unity. And you got to come into unity around the message of the gospel. We're reading today from verse 26 to the end of the chapter, chapter 1. And I invite you to follow along with me. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. In the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I want to begin the day with some questions and I don't want you to respond out loud. I don't want you to raise your hand or to stand up if they are true for you. I just want to begin with these rhetorical questions to help us begin to get an understanding of what the Apostle Paul is talking about. I wonder how many of us here today, when we were graduating from high school, we were the valedictorian or the salutatorian. I happen to know that there are some in our church who were when they graduated from high school. How many of you earned multiple degrees and you received a lot of scholastic accolades? Again, I know some who did. I know some who have multiple degrees. You see their name and you find all those letters that just keep going after their name. How many of you were all-state or all-conference or maybe an all-American athlete during your school years? I don't know too many of those in our church. There probably are some that I just don't know about. How many of you ever won a beauty contest? I didn't say an ugly contest. I said, how many of you won a beauty contest? Maybe when you were a child or when you were a teenager or when you were a young lady. How many of you grew up in a family that didn't have to worry about money? You didn't think about where the next meal was coming from. You weren't worried about uh, the day-to-day -day expenses, you weren't concerned about inflation or the rising cost of living, you never thought about it. You grew up in a family that 
was the upper class if it comes to the matter of, of finances. Uh, how many of you were president of your class? You were the one that everybody chose to be the leader in your class. How many of you were voted most likely to succeed? I, I suppose they still do yearbooks. I'm not aware if they are or they're not. But I suppose they still do yearbooks. But you remember when they did yearbooks and a lot of times there would be a student who was chosen the most likely to succeed. Now, I could go on asking those kinds of questions related to, you know, your education or your accomplishments about what you have attained and what you have achieved in life and who you are and to whom you are connected. We could go on asking those kinds of questions. But I want everybody who fits in one or multiple of those categories to listen to me very carefully. I want you to know that God can still use you. God can still use you. You say, Pastor, that's sort of unconventional, that's sort of unconventional wisdom. Yeah, I know. And that's exactly what Paul is giving to us at the end of chapter one, what might be considered unconventional wisdom. I mean, when you think about God doing his work, you'd think that God would go to some Ivy Leaguer and he would choose that one to be the one who would accomplish the work. He'd be somebody who was well-connected or somebody who's well-known or somebody's in a position of power or somebody who has great accomplishments or somebody who's wealthy. And God can use and God does use people like that. But may I just tell you by way of beginning the day, that most of the work that God does, God does through people like you and me. We're just sort of ordinary, just sort of common. There's nothing all that spectacular about us or that spectacular about our lives. And God can use any one of us. And might I take a moment and say to those of you that are the well-connected and the wealthy and those of you that have the power uh, positions and those that have prestige and, and those that know the nobility and those that come from the ranks of the successful, may I just say to you, it's vitally important if you're going to be used by God that you humble yourself, that you humble yourself because God will not share his glory with any of us. But God wants to use us. And the Apostle Paul is talking about that here at the end of chapter 1, about the fact that God wants to use us. And yet when the world looks at the church and when the world looks at what we'll call the missionaries that are carrying the message of the gospel, when the world looks at the missionaries that are carrying the gospel, they say the same thing they say about the message of the gospel. The same thing they say about the mode of delivering the gospel. They say, when you look at those missionaries that are sitting in the churches every Sunday, well, they're just foolish people. They're the weak and the powerless and the insignificant and the unimportant and the unknown. Those are the ones that are sitting in our churches for the most part. And those are just the foolish people. There's no way if this message is that important and that significant that it should be delivered to the whole world, there's no way that God would, that God would commit that message to people like that. I mean, after all, they don't have a master's degree. They don't have 
an advanced PhD. They don't have whatever else might be added to their name. They don't have any great amounts of money. They don't have any great connectedness in life. They're not known for their power or their position or their prestige. Surely if God was going to commit his message to some people that would carry it to the ends of the earth and turn the world upside down, surely he would do it with some Ivy Leaguers. He'd do it with some of the powerful people of the world. He'd do it with some of the most notable individuals that there are. Surely that's the way God would do it. There's no way he could ever use you or me. And yet Paul comes and says that's exactly the way that God works. Not only do the people of this world find the message that we proclaim to be foolishness and the mode that we have to deliver that message to be foolishness, they consider the missionaries that are entrusted with the message to be foolishness as well. I want you to look back for a moment at verse 26. He says, for you see your calling, brethren. He's talking to the Corinthians, the believers in the Corinthian church, that not many wise, that word wise would be the equivalent of a philosopher, somebody who's a part of the intellectual community. Not many wise according to the flesh by the standards of humanity by the standards of our world by the human standards not many that are of the intellectual community and not many that are mighty the word mighty speaks of somebody who is strong and powerful who has a place of position in life who has influence not many mighty and not many noble that has to do with your genetics i think of the royal family in england uh, Queen Elizabeth has died, and now it's King Charles. And right behind him, when he dies, will be Prince William to become the next king. Not many were born into nobility. Not many were born into royalty, where the, where the throne is passed down from one generation to the next. Not many. But I want you to notice something. He didn't say not any. There's one little letter that you, you don't want to miss. He doesn't say not any wise and not any mighty and not any that are noble. He just says there's not many of them that are the wise and not many of them that are the mighty and not many of them that are the called. In other words, God chooses to do his greatest work through the simplest of people like you and me. I want to make sure you understand that if you're one of those that could answer some of those questions earlier on or other questions like them, I want to make sure you understand that you are vital to the cause of Christ. If you stay humble, God will use you. God wants you to work and serve him. But most of the work that God has gotten done through the generations has been done through very simple, common, ordinary people. In the early New Testament church, there were people who were powerful an author and a professor of divinity at the University of Glasgow who was a historian writes this. We must never think that the early church was entirely composed of slaves. Even in the New Testament, we see that people from the highest ranks of society were becoming Christians. There was Dionysius at Athens, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Crete, the noble ladies at Thessalonica in Berea. There was Erastus, the city treasurer, in the time of Nero, Paponia Gracina, the wife of Plautius, the, the conqueror of Britain, was martyred for her Christianity. 
In the time of Domitian in the second century, in the second half of the first century, Flavius Clemens, the cousin of the emperor himself, was martyred as a Christian. Towards the end of the second century, Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, wrote to Trajan, the emperor, saying that the Christians came from every rank in society, he says. But then he concludes, but it remains true that the great mass of Christians were ordinary and humble men and women. In the church at Corinth, we know that there were some powerful people there. Sosthenes and Crispus are mentioned. Both of these men at one time had served as the rulers of the synagogue. We've already heard about Erastus. He was the city treasurer. We know a man by the name of Gaius. It's listed in the book of 1 Corinthians that he was a wealthy businessman There were some who were mighty, and there were some who were wise, and there were some who were noble, but not many. Not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty that were called to do the work of God. You understand that God can use the intellectual, he can use the powerful, he can use the noble-born, he can use the well-connected people to serve God, if they're saved, to serve God. And the church at Corinth had some of those kind of people, but the kind of people God normally uses are just the ordinary people, the common people, just like you and me. And if you're one of that elite crowd, I've never been a part of that elite crowd. Some of you are. If you're a part of that elite crowd, let me just remind you of what 1 Peter 5, 5 says. Yes, All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I'm not sure where we got to thinking that God needs star athletes and God needs big names and God needs intellectual scholars and God needs the important people of this world. That that's the only way that God could get his work done. When the majority of the people of God through the ages have been just normal people like you and me, that God chose to do the greatest work that he could do. As a matter of fact, did did you notice how he describes most of us? We're not part of the not many. Maybe there's some here that are a part of uh, of the few. But most of us aren't a part of that category. As a matter of fact, what does he say? Verse 27, but, but God has chosen the exact opposite. God has chosen the foolish as con- in contrast to the wise. What the world calls foolish, the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not. They're non-entities to bring to nothing the things that are. The word foolish gives us our word moron. It means somebody who's dull, somebody uh, who's slow. Uh, The word weak speaks of somebody with no strength, somebody who's sickly, somebody who's infirmed, somebody that has little to offer. The word base speaks of somebody that doesn't come from the right gene pool. They're not from the royal pedigree. Those that are despised are the ones that the people consider to be of no account. Society looks at them as no account. And the things which you're not, well, that's a reference to people who have no personally spectacular quality to offer the cause. 
How many of you fit into that category? Those, those categories, foolish, weak, base, despised, things which are not. I suggest to you that more of us fit into that category than into that very narrow category where there's not many wise and not many noble and not many mighty. And yet God chooses to use us you understand that God can take the weak things of this world and he can equip them, he can empower them, he can utilize them, he can put them to work sharing the message of the gospel, and he can bring lost people to Christ through those individuals, and he can do what the world around us says is utter foolishness. Not only is your message foolish, the mode you have to deliver that message is foolish, but the missionaries that are delivering that message, I consider them to be foolish. They're not powerful enough and connected enough and well-known enough and in prestigious positions enough to be used of God. I mean, look at you. You're a ragtag army. And yet you study history. And God has moved the world with people like you and me. People like you and me. I mean, God often uses small, insignificant things to accomplish his purpose. Think about David and Goliath. That Goliath was defying the armies of Israel, and what are they doing? Are they standing up to him? No, they're hiding from him. One day, David's father sends him out to bring food to his brothers who were in the Israelite army. He hears Goliath defying the armies of God, defying the God of the Israeli armies. And David wants to know what's being done about it. He sees all of them hiding. What are you going to do about this? And he says, I'll go fight against him. You remember Saul was willing to accept him. Saul said, okay, I'm going to let you go, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my armor on you. And he put his armor on David, and David began moving around in the armor. He said, I can't go to battle in this armor. I've never used this before. It's too heavy. It's too bulky. What do you got, David? What do you have that you can use as a weapon against the Philistine, Goliath? Well, I, well, I have a stone, five smooth stones and a, and a sling. And David, that young boy, walks out into that valley and he listens to the defiant, uh, he listens to the defi defiant Goliath. Goliath looks at him and says, hey, have you sent me a dog? I mean, who do you think I am that you'd send out this boy out here? He uses derogatory terminology. You ever had derogatory terminology used about you? Who do you think you are to send out this boy? And David says, I don't come to you in my name. I come to you in the name of of the Lord and suddenly the sling starts going round and round and round and God takes that one smooth stone and he plants it right in the forehead of Goliath and he falls over dead. Who would have ever thought that God would use a little boy, a young boy like that and a little stone like that to kill such a great giant? But that's the way God works, isn't it? Think about Moses in the Red Sea. After those 10 plagues, the death angel, the last one, the death angel passes over. The firstborn are all dead, and the, the Israelites are thrust out. They're pushed out of Israel. Now they're headed toward the promised land, but they've got an obstacle before them. And what is it? It's the Red Sea. And now it's not just the Red Sea. It's the Egyptian army that's reconstituted itself, and now they're chasing after them. So they're 
they're between a rock and a hard place, if you will. They got the Red Sea before them, and they got the Egyptian army coming behind them. And what does God say to do? God says, Moses, hold up that, that rod. A rod? Hold up that rod, and he holds up the rod, and God parts the waters, and the children of Israel walk across on dry ground. Isn't it absolutely hilarious? It is absolutely hilarious. Every, every holiday season on the various channels on our, our television, they have scientists trying to figure out how the water could have parted as if they're somehow going to be able to reproduce the miracle that God created. You see, the intellectual community. But there were some people who just believed God and he held up the rod and God opened the waters. And when they all got to the other side, he put the rod up again. And what did God do? God brought the waters together and destroyed the Egyptian army. Why? Because God can use little things, insignificant things, seemingly unimportant things, things that everybody else overlooks and nobody else thinks twice about. They think there's no way God would ever use that thing. Or think about Gideon, the judge in the book of Judges. The Midianites were raiding them over and over. They were destroying their crops. They were stealing their crops and then destroying what was left. What were the people doing? They were hiding in the caves. They don't want to be taken or killed by the Midianites. And God comes to Gideon and says, I want you. I want you to be the deliverer. And you know the story if you've read it. If you haven't read it, please go back and read it, uh, Judges, in the book of Judges. There's a sort of a bizarre you know, series of things that unfolds about God calling him and you know, uh, Gideon being sure that it is God who's calling him. And, and then when it comes time that he's convinced it is God going to do this, God wants me to do this, He's got, what, 32,000, and God says that's too many, and he pairs it down to 22,000. And there's, there's another little bizarre incident that happens about the drinking of water, and it comes down till he has how many? He has 300 fighters against the Midianites. This is a massive army. It's a massive army. And 300 men are going to go against them. And you know what happens? God defeats the Midianites. You know why? It's the foolishness of the world. The world thinks at us and they look at us and they say, how foolish is your message and, and how foolish is the mode of delivering that message and how foolish are the missionaries that are carrying that message? Do you realize that every one of you are missionaries? Every one of you are missionaries every single day. You're a missionary to where you live and to where you work and amongst the people that, that are a part of your life in that network of people. You are the missionary. And people look at you and they say, there's no way. There's no way God would commit the pastoring of a church to David Lemming. There's no way. But God can take a stone and a sling, and God can, take, God can take a rod, and God can take 300 men against a massive army, and God can do what no man can do. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how well-connected you are. It doesn't matter how far up the ladder you've climbed. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. 
God can use people like that if they're willing to humble themselves, put themselves before God and say, Lord, I will not trust in myself or in my accomplishments. I will trust in you. But you know what? When you're like the rest of us, we know the only hope we have is if we trust in God and God chooses to use us. We put ourselves in his hands and we say, Lord, please use me. Or think about the apostles. The day of Pentecost has come. The church is birthed into existence. The gospel is spreading by leaps and bounds. People are being saved everywhere. And the religious leaders aren't happy about it. And so they take Peter and John under arrest. They keep them overnight. They bring them out the next day before the religious ruling body of the day. And and they're determined to silence them. Stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Stop talking about Jesus. And Peter gives one of those sermons. I told you the book of Acts is a, is a book of sermons. Peter gives one of those sermons, and at the end of it, this is what, what they say about them. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were, here's the words, uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus They were uneducated and untrained. Can I just stop here for a moment? I've heard many preachers through the years, many preachers through the years. I've heard some wonderful messages from people who have PhDs, but I want to tell you, I have heard some of the most moving and powerful messages from men who never had a college degree, but they knew God and they knew God's word. And they loved God and they loved people's souls with all of their being. Because God isn't dependent on what you are or how much you have or how connected you are or how high up you rise or how intellectual you are. God is dependent on the matter of us being surrendered to him and saying, here, Lord, use me. And did you notice when it came to Peter and John that being with Jesus yields greater wisdom and courage as well as happier and more productive lives than great wealth and great learning? I mean, who would ever think of committing to these 11 men, one that's added after Judas uh, takes his life, who, who would ever think of committing to these 12 men? Who would ever think of committing a movement that's gonna change the world? Do you realize who these are? One of them's a mercenary. He's fighting the, other, the government. The other's a collaborator with the Roman government. Now, Peter is a hothead. He's always talking when he ought to be listening. Most of the others we hear a little bit about, some of them probably were introverts because you don't hear anything from them at all. They were a ragtag group of men. And yet God comes and brings the greatest movement that's ever come to mankind. And what does he commit it? How does he commit it? He commits it to these men. Oh, you you should have put that, you should have put that in an Ivy League school somewhere. You should have given that to somebody who's royal. You should have given that task to somebody that's connected and powerful. God says, that's not the way I work. That's not the way I work. I give it to men and to women who know me and who love me, 
who learn my word and who are willing to be used by me, and I will do through them what they could never do no matter how high they rose on the scale by human standards. Amen? Think about Paul himself. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, sort of like I came to the pulpit today, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. In my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You hear what Paul says? I want you to understand that God does his best work through people that are available, not always the ones that are capable I want you to understand that God takes nobodies and he turns them into somebodies for his cause. That God takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things because then the glory belongs to God and not to the individuals who are involved in the task. If I can just use an illustration out of the legal world for a moment. You don't have to be a judge or a lawyer or a legal scholar. You know what God wants us to be? He wants us to be a court reporter. You know what a court reporter does? Absolutely essential to, to the functioning of, a, of, a, of a, a courtroom, right? Or to a deposition. Absolutely essential. They're taking down what was said. They're making sure verbatim that they get everything that is said so that they can stand up if they're asked the question and they can repeat exactly back what was given to them and they put down in their court report. Do you realize that what's what God's asking us to do? He's, asking, he's not asking us to be judges and lawyers and, and legal scholars. If you're a judge, a lawyer, a legal scholar, I'm not saying God can't use you. Well, maybe I am. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm using it as an illustration. He wants us to be court reporters. You know what our job is? Our job isn't to make something up. Our job is to take the message that's already been written down. It's already been reported. It's already been given to us, and we just communicate it to others. Exactly what he said. We're not looking for another legal uh, argument. We're not looking for a loophole. We don't need a legal scholar to go study all the books. We need the, we need the court reporter to stand up and say, thus says the Lord. Amen. That's the people that God uses. Unfortunately, the world would consider people like us to be unusable and unworthy vessels for such a noble task. Some believe that to entrust the message of the gospel to us is scandalous and it's utter foolishness but the Apostle Paul said it is the wisdom of God. <laughs> you remember when you were in school, in elementary school most likely, and you were going to be divided into two teams. It might have been for some sporting event. It might have been some educational event. I remember one time doing this, and the teacher, it was going to be a spelling contest. And, you know, each 
divide the class into two, two groups, two teams, and each person would spell until there was nobody left, and the team that had one, one person left was the winning team. Well, you know how that goes. The teacher always picks the best speller, right? Right? You always pick the best speller. And then the best speller starts choosing. The best spellers, the two of them, start choosing. You know, I want you, and I'll take you, and I'll take you, and I'll take you, and you watch the numbers dwindle and there's only two or three left. By the way, I was one of the last three. There's only two or three left, and finally you get down to the last one, and the captain who has no other choice, and he's looking around the room, surely there's somebody else here. Maybe there's a dog I could call on and get the dog to come take. Finally, the last student is chosen. Okay, you'll be on my my team. Oh, man, I don't think we're going to win this thing. Might have been in some sport that you did that kind of a thing. You know how embarrassing it is to be the last student or the last couple of students chosen? I mean, what are they saying? They're saying, well, you're not as good as the others, or maybe you're not as popular as the others. But can I just tell you that God looks around the room and the ones who might be the last or the next to the last or the third to the last, God says, I'll use you. I'll do something through you. I'll change the world with you. I can do incredible things by my power through your vessel. Because that's the way God works. The good news today is that God wants the least and the last on his team. And he'll use you to do eternal things that others may never be able to do. You realize that there's a lot of PhDs that are still arguing about salvation and about eschatology, still arguing about, you know, do you believe this and do you believe that? And they'll debate it to the end of the age. And they'll never win anybody to Jesus Christ. They'll never be a vessel used in God's glory for God's kingdom. They will forever be caught up in the pettiness of the arguments. You say, is that not important? It's important in a classroom. But when it comes to a church, this is the place where we're on mission. We're on mission to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the world looks at the missionaries that are sitting here today. And the world says, it's utter foolishness that God would take this eternal message and he would give it to people like us. And God says, that's where I do my best work, is with people just like you. I'm reading a book. It's called Fan Fan the Flame. It's written by Jim Cimbala. Jim Cimbala is the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle. If you know anything about it, you may know their choir if you don't know Jim Cimbala, you know Carol Cimbala. The choir is world famous. They've sung everywhere, incredible choir. But he's written a book, post-pandemic book, trying to encourage churches and pastors, and I picked it up. It's a brand new book, just came out. I picked it up. I'm in chapter six, I think it is. But you know, it's always interesting when you're, you pick up something, you think you're picking it up, and you're going to you know, read through it quickly, and there's an illustration in the book that God says, I want you to use that in the message. Chapter 4 of the book. Here's the illustration. Jim Cimbala writes, Too often we swallow what the culture tells us is all important to gain acceptance. For example, conventional wisdom has it that the more degrees a person earns, the better they will be in their field. But having more degrees doesn't always translate into more effective ministry. 
He goes on. I think of a young man who came into my office a few years ago. He was a sincere fellow, educated at seminary, eager to serve the Lord. Pastor Jim, he said, can I open my heart? Of course, I said, what's on your mind? I'm at a crossroads. I want to be used by God. The thing is, he seemed to be groping for words. The thing is, I've got my master's degree and now I have the opportunity to get my PhD. What do you think I should do? I'm stressed out about this decision. Jim Cimbala says, listen, brother, I don't know God's plan for your life. I really don't. But let me tell you about the world I live in and how I view it. You're sitting here in my office. If you look out the window, you'll see thousands of people walking around who need Jesus. Some are sober, some aren't. Some are straight, some are gay, some are wealthy, while others live on the street. If they think of God at all, the last thing any of them thinks is, God, I'm desperate, I need help. Please send someone with a PhD to rescue me. Every minister must be led by God in their educational decisions, he says. But without doubt, the greatest need for today is simple, spirit-filled workers who know their Bible and are filled with his love. Filled with his love. I got news for you. Those of you that are well-connected, those of you that are wealthy... Those of you that have climbed the ladder, those of you that got positions of power and prestige, and everybody knows who you are. You walk in a room, everybody knows who you are. Listen, God can use you, but it's going to start with you humbling yourself and acknowledging that the work of God can't be done through your pride. It will only be done through a vessel that is fully surrendered to him and useful to him. But for the rest of us, most of us in this room are people who already know how weak we are. We're not the smartest people there are. We're not the, we're not the bravest or the strongest. We're not the most connected. We're not the wealthiest. We barely make, make ends meet sometimes. We don't have everything that a lot of people have. Can I just tell you something? God wants to do his greatest work through people just like you. He wants to do his greatest work through people just like you. Well, when I, when I get a better education and when I, you know, when I climb the ladder and I'm a little better known and I'm in a position of power and I've got some authority and people respect me, hey, if you wait for all that, you'll never get used of God. You know what you do? You come before God and you say, God, who I am and what I am, I give to you. And I ask you, Lord, to use it. You're not asking me to do what somebody else is doing. You're not asking them to do what you're going to have me do. But Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, it'll have to be you that does it. Because if it gets done, it'll be your power and your glory that'll be, that'll be most important. I can't do this on my own. Lord, if you're calling me to it, you're going to have to enable me for it. And you know what God does? God shows up every single time to use those kinds of people to do some of the most incredible things. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Look back, chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 31. By, by the way, these are 
These are a paraphrase, if you will, of, of something that's said in Jeremiah chapter, chapter 9. He says, God chooses these kind of seemingly unimportant, insignificant things that no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 31, as it is written, this is Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You know what happens when you get to the end of the process and something is accomplished of eternal value that God does in your life and through your life? Do you know what happens? You know, you stop it. You do the same thing I do day in and day out. I do, I do this often. God, thank you. I mean, I didn't have much to give you. I didn't really have anything to give you. But what I had, I gave you. And Lord, what's been done isn't because of me. Nobody's ever going to say, Lewis Memorial Baptist Church is what it is because of David Lemming. Nobody will ever, ever say that. You know what they're going to say? The only way David Lemming could have ever seen do what God has done is that God did it. And the praise and the glory go to God who alone is worthy of the praise and the glory. I'll be forgotten one day. My name won't matter. But his name goes on forever.